Would you open your Bibles to Matt or to <laughs> Psalm 11? Let's stand as I read this, okay? Psalm 11. For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I have watched the Facebookization of our culture in the last few years, there's a word that has come to own my mind. For many years, the word that owned my mind was uh, effeminacy and androgyny. And now the word that owns my mind is a word that begins with a B. Some of you will know it, some won't. The word is banal. And it's a word that you really have to know and understand in our culture. The reason is that you can't begin to relate to this psalm. And the reason you can't relate to this psalm is that you do not see that the foundations are being destroyed. It's steady state economy for us. We're used to it. Wickedness is so prevalent in our public square and reformed pastors have been gagged by their professors that we don't have the ability of seeing accurately what's going on around us. It's become banal. The most godless acts of wickedness are trite and trivial and commonplace. And so nobody here feels like fleeing like a bird. Nobody here is even susceptible to the seduction that is the first half of this psalm, which is to throw their hands up, to give up, and to say, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? We may feel that way because of the behavior of our children. We may feel this way because our wife turns away from us as it gets to be bedtime. But we don't gnash our teeth And we don't get driven crazy by the things that are all around us. Many of you will go to Google's news page today. And you will see at the top of Google News the announcement that Barney Frank has married his, quote, longtime lover, unquote. You will remember that Barney Frank is the man who sodomized his pages, in the United States Congress. You'll remember that he's a congressman from Massachusetts, where we used to live. And you'll see in some of the news stories that with great conceit, it will be said that because this was in Massachusetts and because the governor of Massachusetts provided, presided over the wedding, that people will say Massachusetts, quote, has always led, unquote. And you'll just sit there and think, oh, brother, that's disgusting. And it won't occur to you that God is bothered. Because you've bought the lie that the mark of a sophisticated Christian today is that he's not bothered, but he's graceful and chipper. 
in the midst of great adversity, and that the more chipper a Christian is, the more graceful he is. And that it's the mark of a judgmental person that wickedness bothers him. And so the first half won't do it for you. It won't cut it for you. You'll have to sort of do some mind game about what David must have been going through at the time. And if you read the commentaries, what they say is it must have been when Saul was chasing David. You know, trying to kill him. And of course it makes sense because all of us are so narcissistic, so solipsistic, which is another good word that's died that you should know, that it's inconceivable that David would see the foundations being destroyed not when his life is being attacked by the king, but when wickedness is prevailing. It's inconceivable that David would have his lowest point when God's honor is under destructive attack. We think, well, it must have been when David himself was in the cave hiding such indignity when he had to slobber and drool in front of uh, whatever, Ahimelech, Abimelech, what, what was the guy's name, Stephen? Don't let me down. What was the guy's name? Oh, well, forget it. But you know what I'm talking about, when he had to play like he was an idiot in order to save his life. That must have been when this came, you know. When a pastor gets fired, then he writes a psalm like this. And do you know something? A pastor getting fired is not what drives a pastor crazy. It's what drives his wife crazy, maybe. Okay, but not a pastor. You know what drives a pastor crazy? One time I left an an elders meeting in tears. And Bill Mauser, Father Mauser here, a dear friend, he'll identify with this completely. I was a young pastor and I was in my first pastorate and I came to my church to discover that the widows of two previous pastors were elders in my church. And then I discovered that another elder was a 16-year-old woman who had been ordained and installed as an elder three years earlier, and now she was at a college. And then my elders board, this was my elders board, found out that she was living with her boyfriend. And so they took, made an initiative to contact her to exhort her to repent of fornicating. All right? And she refused to even respond. When she came to town, they asked to meet with her. She would not meet with them. And she was an elder. All right. And then the time came that she decided that she wanted to stop fornicating and get married. And so she sent a request through her father, who was also an elder, to use that church for her wedding. It was a very pretty church. It was on the National Register of Historic Places. This is the reason why I never want a pretty church again, because that church was an absolute toxic influence on the life of that congregation. Beauty has its price. All right? And so she sent the request that they use the church and that the previous pastor be allowed to perform the wedding. So the elders' meeting came, the request came before the board of elders, and I did my best to explain to them that this would deeply, deeply offend God and that it would be destructive to her soul, destructive to the soul of of her groom, destructive to our witness in the community, destructive to the family, the extended family in that community, that it would dishonor God. And when I got done explaining it, the vote was taken, and overwhelmingly they approved her use and the previous pastor's use of that facility. And I left the meeting in tears. And it wasn't, it was not because I had been humiliated. It was not because I had been rejected. It wasn't because Saul had me in a cave. It was because it was such an assault on the honor of God. 
And we are able to live in this world without feeling the assault on the honor of God. We recoil in horror at the Barney Frank story because it's so unseemly and our children might be influenced adversely. But those are personal choices every one of us must make. And that's how we meet the public square today. Well, I don't want my children to hear about it. And so when I bring into this sacred place what you feed on the rest of the week, in the 50 minutes that I've been reduced to every week, that was a little passive-aggressive. Listen, I've made the decision. Nobody else has made the decision. But it's largely a marketing decision. You understand. Yeah. And so when I bring this news item that you spend your week slopping the pigs with, do you understand me? I know what your eyes look at all week. I know it. When I bring that into worship, it's offensive to us, not because the honor of God is attacked. It's offensive to us. Because we have made a decision to consume it ourselves in private, but to protect our children until they reach an age of maturity where they themselves can make their own choices. And that's about the state of the church today. You know, Chris can go on campus, see everything he sees, and come home and be so glad that his children don't have to partake. But does Chris gnash his teeth while he's on campus because of the wickedness? Does Eric gnash his teeth not because taxpayers' dollars are being used to thing, for things that are antithetical to the taxpayers, but because it's offense against God? And listen, I'm going to tell you, one thing that's been largely missing in the conference this weekend is the fact that every true son not only wants to take on the likeness of his father, that was proclaimed clearly, right? That was proclaimed. But you know what was missing? Have you ever seen somebody in the middle of a basketball game make a comment about a black man's mother and what happens? I have. At Elgin High School, it was about a quarter black. And one day, my friend Mitch made a derogatory comment to a black man we were playing basketball with about his mother. It didn't fly. And this world absolutely trashes the law and the name of our God. And we view it as piety and as a certain spiritual sophistication, indeed as an act of grace, that we control our feelings and have equanimity. Would it commend a man to you if you saw him in public standing in the presence of a man who was trashing his father, and he never acknowledged that it was his father, let alone defended him. Do you know, I remember being in a seminary class at Gordon-Conwell, and a man who liked to keep his foot in the evangelical world by being, while being a flaming liberal, a man who had supposedly come to faith I think at Penn State, with InterVarsity, but now was a professor at Harvard Divinity School. He came up to Gordon-Conwell, an hour north, to lecture. And the, the class had something to do with the history of evangelicalism or something. And in the middle of the class, he began to trash my father by name. My father was a well-known evangelical leader, and what's the chance of his son sitting in the classroom, you know? <laughs> Let me tell you, before that class was over, he knew my father's son was in that class. And yet, we cultivate the ability 
of suffering insults to the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. With equanimity, that means without flappability, that means we're not bothered. And that is defined in the church today as spiritual maturity. And so I said at the beginning, I want you to learn the word banal. Wickedness is banal. What does banal mean? Banal is trite, trivial, unoriginal, predictable, dull, stale, vapid, platitudinous. Banal is a bromide. Now, I'll bet a number of you don't know some of those words. And the reason is because our world is so banal that we have lost the synonyms. We don't know the word androgyny today. We don't know the word effeminate today because our world is so androgynous and so effeminate that we've had to kill the words that are used derogatorily about effeminacy and androgyny. Do you understand? And so our world is so banal, it's so utterly dull. Are you with me? That we don't know the word banal. Every sermon is so filled with bromides that we have a clue what a bromide is. Evangelical blogs are so filled with platitudes that we think it, we have absolutely no idea what a platitude is. And then, is it any surprise that our publishers take the word of God in which every single word is inspired and they hone in on those words most offensive to our platitudinous banal culture? and eviscerate, and you don't know the word eviscerate, the text of those precise words. And then we're left with a bodlerized Bible, and you don't know the word bodlerize. Bodlerize, I think it was Pastor Bodler, Reverend Bodler over in England, who took Shakespeare and removed anything that would offend a Victorian mother's sensibilities. And so that version of Shakespeare was a bodlerized version. And that's what evangelical publishers are doing to the Bible today. They take out the word Jew and Jews, all right, where it refers to the people screaming for the murder of Jesus Christ, Because if we leave that in John, the Gospel of John, then more people will be anti-Semitic, and that's the big bugaboo today, right? And then they take out the reference to the church as brothers because it will offend women, and thousands of places, male-marked Hebrew and Greek words have been eviscerated from the text of Scripture by Tyndale House, by Zondervan, by publishers who are selling most of the Bibles in America today. And we can read this text, and we read verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we go, boy, David must have been in a cave, running from Saul. (laughs) And it's inconceivable to us that there were men in the past who would die rather than see the honor of God harmed. Men who knew that every human being had an immortal soul and who lived as if there were souls. Some of you have watched my halting effort at going on a television station, being a TV preacher. Okay? And do you know something? I Somehow, by the grace of God, I had the ability twice to make reference to the Bible. And do you know that one of my closest, dearest friends, I love this man, 
His response to this was to say that I should not have quoted Scripture because the audience of WTIU doesn't honor Scripture. There were arguments that would have been better. We had a a woman visiting us a few months ago, and when we got home, we we tried to fence the table in such a way that... that, uh, well, I better be careful here. But anyhow, when we got home, this woman said to me, actually said to me, do you know, I did not take communion because no woman was serving it, and I will not take communion if I'm bad back until there is a woman serving communion. And I said to her, this is not an oversight This is a principle. We look precisely at those points where God's honor is most directly attacked. And it's there that we stand. That's where we stand. Because that's the place that we get to have the greatest shame. And we won't be robbed of our shame. Because it's precious. Right? Right? Can't we please embrace the shame of the cross? And so we look at that. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And... And we think it must have been when David was reduced to hiding in a cave so Saul wouldn't kill him. Hmm. This is much like Psalm 73, and both Psalms have a fulcrum, okay? You get to a point in the Psalm where, you know, when you were a little kid on the seesaw, and all of a sudden, your stupid big brother came and sat down next to your little... You were in control until your brother, big brother came along and sat on your little sister's back behind her. And all of a sudden, you're like, boom! You know? And both Psalm 73 and 11 have that boom, right? And here comes the boom, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. <laughs> and you wonder why I'm laughing. And the reason I'm laughing is laughter is this wonderful gift from God that just breaks out from us when we finally see the disparity between what is and what was meant to be. And I'm laughing because he sits in heaven and he laughs. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You remember when Stephen said this? And this is when they really decided they were going to kill him. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. And about this time we're saying, yeah, he's going to whoop up on them. And then watch what it says. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And again, evangelical world doesn't have any place for that. Well, I'm saved. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. He doesn't test me. Well, I mean, he tests me. You know, sometimes my wife doesn't make peas the way I like them to be made. That's a test. We're completely banal. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord's test the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Listen, do you realize that the gnashing of the teeth and the pulling out of the hair and the ashes and the ripped coats and the ripped shirts and the the agony of the righteous living in this wicked world, the agony of it. Do you realize what the comfort is here? Do you remember what the comfort is in Psalm 73? You know, where it talks about how the rich have no pains in death. you remember that? You realize that's the condition of the Western world today? There are no longer any pains in death. You realize that. Morphine removes pain, and there is no suffering allowed in death anymore. And this is how Psalm 73 describes 
Let me read it to you. This is how it describes the rich, all right? It says this about them. It says, their eyes bulge from fatness. Thank you. Verse 4, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. There are no pains in their death. And this is what is being produced in our culture right now, right in front of us. It is very common for me to get calls from people whose loved ones are at the end of their life and who have had a hospice or a doctor or nurses or somebody decide that it's time to kill them. And the typical way people are killed in our culture today is that they're given steadily increasing dosages of morphine that suppress their vital functions. All right? Or they're starved or they're dehydrated to death. They are not given food and water. And so I get these phone calls from people, and they have no idea what to do because it's the people they're paying to care for their loved ones who are killing them and telling them that this is the kind thing to do. And after all, everybody knows that 30% of healthcare dollars are spent in the last 30 days or something like that. What's the stat? It's something like that. And everybody knows that God doesn't want anybody to suffer, right? Everybody knows that it's not God's intention that all the grass is dead around here because the rain didn't come. Nobody speaks of it as God not sending the rain. God doesn't want suffering. And so what happens is people stand up and they announce that 30% of healthcare dollars are spent in the last 30 days of life and that it is your duty, remember Governor Lamb in Colorado, it is your duty to kick off so that the young ones can take over. And you should not spend the money of your children having yourself cared for at the end of life. And so we will starve you to death, we will dehydrate you to death, or we will give you increasing doses of morphine so we don't have to wait as long as starvation and dehydration come. And the justification is 30% of healthcare dollars are spent in the last 30 days of life. But listen, have you ever wondered whether God knew that at the end of life you would have to put as much into a person as at the beginning of life? (laughs) Do you think that it surprises God that someone dying needs as much care as someone being born? So what should we do, like starve the baby in the womb so the mother doesn't have to go through the suffering? And you say, yeah, but that produces life. And I say, what do you think death produces? John Donne, a great poet, said this about death. And he knew a lot about death. He came close to it and thought he was dying a number of times, right? John Donne said this about death, and I wonder whether that eminent, august English literature student in the back knows what poem I'm going to use. Lord, are you with me? Lord, he says, since I am going to join that great choir of the saints, okay, tune my lips that what I am to do there, I do here before. Since I'm about to die, would you please make sure to bring me on pitch so that when I get there with the choir of saints, I'm ready. Would you please tune my lips? And here we are. What are we doing? We're killing to prevent suffering. We're killing so that the lips won't be tuned. What do you think suffering's supposed to be? Suffering is to tune your lips so that you're on pitch. You have a bad marriage and you come and complain because certainly God didn't intend you to have a bad marriage. How on earth do you think you're going to be sanctified? You have a right to escape suffering as a Christian? 
You have no right to escape suffering. John Donne is telling you that that man that you married is God's pitchfork or pitch pipe or pitch, what do they call the little thing you hit on a piano? How could it be a pitchfork when that's the thing that you're, a tuning fork? But I think pitchfork's a better word, you know? Because that's what it is. It's a fork and it does pitch, you know? All right, all right, all right, all right. And so here your husband is. And all right, he is wicked and looks at pictures of naked women. And you say, well, certainly that's not God tuning my lips so that what I am to do there, I do here before. I say, oh, really? So what, you want to go to bed on flowers of ease? And you say, well, righteous suffering, but not unrighteous suffering. (sighs) Come on. Embrace the sanctification of God. Give yourself to him. Give yourself to him. Give yourself to him. Not one thing in your life has escaped the attention of God. Not one thing. He knows every hair on our head. He knows every kick in your belly as a pregnant woman. He knows every single cynical comment of your wife at family reunions. Okay? There's nothing in your life, nothing, that does not come from the hand of God. Nothing. And he examines the righteous. He's a good father, and so he disciplines us. And the discipline of God should be precious to you. It doesn't mean that you have to go around and blather and lie. Don't you hate people who claim to be Christians, who think to be a Christian is to lie? You all know what I'm talking about. They go around with banalities and platitudinous nothings and talk about what a godly leader their husband is. Huh? Yeah. In the Southern culture, this is, bless his heart. All right? Now, so far what I have said about this text is true and has been fairly difficult, but let me bring it to an end. Skip forward. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Do you know that both Psalm 73 and Psalm 11, where there's just complete despair over the wickedness. Do you know what the comfort is? The comfort is the judgment of the wicked. And do you know that this is one of the key indications that you are godly? Is that you take comfort in the coming judgment of God of wickedness. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if this is characteristic of your prayer life, or as the charismatics say, your prayer language. If this is the nature of the prophetic words in your charismatic worship services. Do you know... The Lord used charismatics to bring me back to the Lord, did a lot of work in me. But, you know, never once did I hear any prophecy that wasn't what I characterize as a heaving bosom prophecy, which is a mother who now has empty nest and has some sense that she has something left to give. And so she stands up and gives a prophetic word, and every one of them is a pathetic word. It's a woman that doesn't know where to go with her heaving bosom anymore. Do you think that that's what it means when we read in Amos that God does nothing that he does not reveal first to his prophets? Did you notice that? Did you notice that in the scripture lesson this morning? God does nothing but that he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. Isn't it amazing that in a banal world, our prophetic words are banal? They're platitudinous. They're 
the Lord bless you, bless him, grace, mercy, peace, blessing, 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 blessing. And yet when we go to scripture and we see a man that's suffering under the oppression of wickedness and of attacks upon his father, the comfort that he gets is what? This refers to the fire of Sodom. Do you see it? Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And let me tell you, that has a little bit of meaning to us right now in America, doesn't it? Any of you that's seen any of those video clips of Colorado Springs and up in the mountains above them? Do you want to be there? I don't even want to be underneath the canopy yesterday. It's awful. I keep telling myself, this is unbelievable. In winter, you could never have convinced me that a day would come this summer when I would not want, absolutely have no desire to be outside. Cannot bear it. And what? This is, this is the most infinitesimal, tiniest, microscopic picture of the coming judgment of the wicked. And you say, yes, yes, I'm with you intellectually. And then I say, this is your comfort. And you say, can't go there, right? Be honest with me. Come on, people. Nod your head and say, yes, I can't go there. Would you please? You can't. You will go there. Yeah. You will go there. Is anybody else willing to go there and to say, this will be my comfort? Now, what are you, the rest of you going to say? You're going to say that Bill and his wife, Barbara, are judgmental? Is that what you're going to say? Do you have any idea how judgmental the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will soon reveal himself to be? He's not going to come back as a baby of Bethlehem. And all those people who specialize in blurring the distinction between sheep and goats and getting paid to do it, all right, they will be the first ones consumed. Dante relegated them to the lowest circles of hell. Those in a time of moral crisis who copped a posture as neutral. And isn't that the perfect description of pastors today? Some places it's known as R2K. Oh, plausible deniability, it's a principle. But you know, all an Englishman's preferences are a matter of principle. <laughs> Listen, people, you have to gnash your teeth at the wickedness around you. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is to gnash the teeth at your own lusts. You have to hate your own loss because you have to see here that God's going to examine the righteous. And so you have to retune yourself so that there's nothing banal about you. You remember how I say that the most sanctified and holy people are always the weirdest people? And I would nominate Father Bill Mauser. Would you stand up and look at them? Just take a look at them. Stand up. Turn around. I mean, look at this. Now, is this weird or what? No, I'm serious. That's weird. Are you all with me? Now, listen. Do you know what the word holy means? It means weird. But we've said that it means sanctified. But what does sanctified mean? It means set apart. It means devoted. Do you know what the word devoted means? The word devoted means put into the fire and burned. And so when a family that commits great wickedness in their federal head is caught by the Holy Spirit through lots, what happens? It's devoted to God. And it falls into the pit and is consumed. The Canaanites had 400 years to fill up the cup of wickedness. And then they were devoted. Father Mauser is devoted to God. And he spends his life suffering indignities for his holiness. 
And the most painful ones come from the church. And that's why I make a point of honoring him here, because we can't afford to lose him. And you don't even know who he is. You know, I was at a meeting, a dinner, with uh, Jim and Shirley Dobson one night. And do you know what Shirley said? She said, my husband can stand up to the mafia and he can stand up to Washington, D.C. But do you know when Christianity today and the church attacks him, it's devastating to him. Listen, we need, again, to embrace our brothers and sisters who are weird and embarrass us, okay? Because they are the parts of the body that should have the greatest honor. (laughs) What did you think Scripture's talking about? Remember that passage where it talks about there are certain parts that are so special that they need to be treated with extra respect. And those special parts are the parts that cause us to be ashamed. (laughs) And so we're very careful to zipper our flies. Now, you know that's what it meant. Everybody knows that's what it meant, you know, when it's talking about the body. But we never make the transition to the church. The people that we need to make very careful care of are the people who shame us most because they are most holy. And yet, they're the ones that we always attack. Okay? And that's why I'm not ashamed of Father Mauser. I would rather go down with him than stand with anybody else. Are you with me? And listen, Father Mauser's a sinner. (laughs) And nobody knows that more than his wife. And she adores him. You remember Rita Cuffey? There was nobody weirder in the world than Rita Cuffey. Any of you remember? How weird was she? She was absolutely bonkers off the charts weird. You walked in her front door and there's four cereal boxes stacked corner to corner out into nothingness. And one of them's chocoholic. And what they'd done is put a rod, a little wooden dowel, through the corners of all the boxes so the first thing that hits you when you walked in the front door of this Radcliffe Harvard grad was these cereal boxes, and not dignified cereal, you know, like Wheaties. Well, that's even that's not, you know, like brand for your lifestyle. You know, it wasn't stuff like that. You know, it was chocolate. What's that called? What was it? Chocolate what? Chocola, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. And they're off into space. And you know, when Rita read the Bible, it said, go into your closet. Do you know what Rita did? She went into her closet. Because that's what it said. She was so ignorant. Harvard, doctoral candidates, just so ignorant. And she went in the closet. Do you know that I would ask Rita every week to pray for me? We met every week, and I would ask her to pray that I would read Scripture. And after knowing that this was my prayer request week after week, do you know what she did? Rita began to write out about 12 to 15 pages of Scripture every single week. When she'd come in my office, we'd sit down, we'd hug and kiss. She'd hand me these sheets of Scripture, and she'd say, Before we talk, would you read the Scripture? you know that she had the world's worst husband? And do you know there was never in any private or public moment a hint of disrespect or complaining or whining? She loved him unreservedly, and he had been unbelievably sinful. And she loved him. And so we treated Rita with extra honor, didn't we? Huh? And all of us would have died for Rita Cuffey. Right? Mary Lee and I were privileged to find her when she died. 
And what an honor to be there as she joins the choir. Listen, if you don't gnash your teeth at this world, you are a half-Christian. And you're in danger of going mad. Remember, G.K. Chesterton says, the anti-Christian is always a half-Christian gone mad. And there have been a lot of anti-Christians that have left this church because they were half-Christians who went mad. Remember what the ancient Greeks said? Those whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. What you need to do is do what they do in hospital, burn hospitals. You need to take a rake of steel to your flesh, to your heart. And you need to just take off the scabs that have deadened you to God's glory and the honor of your Father in heaven and the, the, putri- the putrefaction of sin of your own heart and of the hearts of your loved ones. Take a rake and just start clawing at the things that have deadened your conscience. Okay? And then slowly you'll have the ability of looking and seeing that the foundations are being destroyed. And then slowly you'll begin to gnash your teeth at wickedness. And you know, it won't be any problem to love the wicked and to testify to them and to be driven crazy by them at the same time. And to feel the assault of God. And you will be amazed at how many wicked people, if you live in that pressure cooker of hating their sin but loving them, and then speaking of God, you'll be amazed at how many pagans will repent and become Christians. The problem is you spent your life around half-Christians who always hate you when you do that. And so you have no faith to do it to pagans. And that's why Jesus hung with sinners. Because he knew that the Pharisees were beyond hope. He was tough as nails on the Pharisees and tender as a baby's bottom with sinners. Okay? And so you need to do what? You need to take a rake, a steel one. That's what it will require. And you need to rake it over your calluses that have corrupted your conscience and and made you insensitive to the indignities of this world against your heavenly Father. You need to restore it. Now, do you know what that rake is? That rake is the preaching of the Word of God. Do you realize that? Did you notice how I haven't gone in the pulpit today? I've never gone in it. And so you can't associate what I'm doing with that pulpit, right? When that pulpit has a man of God in it, not a woman, a man, when that pulpit has a man of God in it, where are you? You're one of two places. You're either somewhere escaping what the burn hospitals do to heal you. You're off refusing to have any rake applied to you because of the pain involved. And many of you made that decision this week not to come to the conference. And it was because you refused to have the rake take your scabs off. I know this, and I watch who isn't here. What do you think a shepherd does? Sits around, picks his nose? (laughs) I know you by name. Some of you got a phone call because I noticed you weren't registered. Some of you got an email from one of our pastors because he noticed you weren't registered. Listen, every single time this pulpit is filled, if you desire the reputation and righteousness of your heavenly Father for yourself, your loved ones, and your neighbors... Every single time the rake gets taken out, you'll be there to make sure that it pulls your scabs off and so that you stop being banal. If any of you compared the amount of time you give to Facebook to the 50 minutes I'm supposed to have, and I've gone to at least 60 this week, it's, just, it's utterly disgusting how resistant we are to God's prophets today. Every time I get up and do something like this, I go through my congregation and think, will they put up with it? 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 
how are you ever going to be able to make these verses of this text be your confession as a godly man and woman if you despise the prophets of God? Welcome back. Listen, church is not supposed to be clean. It's supposed to be a bloody mess. And the preaching is not supposed to be a performance. It's supposed to be a bloody mess. And every time that bloody mess gets up on public display, you will show whether you're a child of God. Because children of God will never miss it. They'll never miss it. Remember what the disciples said when Jesus said, but who do you say I am? Remember? And Peter said what? Thou art what? The Christ, the anointed one, the Son of and, and Jesus said, upon this rock, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the disciples, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, and Jesus had told them that he was going to be killed, there came the great existential dilemma. And the dilemma was whether or not they were going to go with him. (laughs) Remember this? And finally, one of the disciples said, you remember? It was such a dignified moment. It was worthy of Hollywood, of of the kairos, of the moment of catharsis, you know? They said, oh, what the? Remember that? (laughs) They said, oh, what the heck? Let's just go on up to Jerusalem and die with him. (laughs) You remember that? Such a wonderful confession of faith. Can that be our confession of faith as a church? 